Welcome back to Voices of Troy, presented by the Troy Somerset Gazette. I'm your host, Andrew Neal. Today we'll be talking with State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who represents the 13th District of Michigan, which includes Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills, Rochester Hills, Royal Oak, and Troy. She's a first-term Democratic senator who represents about 280,000 people in her district. This week, McMorrow made national headlines when she filed a sexual harassment complaint against State Senator Peter Lucido. Lucido has already been under fire for making inappropriate comments last week to Michigan Advance reporter Allison Donahue, which has led the Michigan Senate to open an investigation into the matter. Before we get to my interview with Senator McMorrow, I want to disclose that Senator Lucido has advertised in our Gazette newspapers in the past. We've reached out to Lucido for comment and invited him to come on the show, but as of this taping, we've yet to hear back. And with that, let's get to my interview with State Senator Mallory McMorrow. Well, thank you, Senator McMorrow, for coming on to our show and being our second guest. Happy to be here. Number two. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's talk um, about yesterday's um, sexual harassment complaint that you filed against State Senator Pete Lucido. When did you decide to come forward with that publicly and why? Yeah, so I'll back up a little bit. Uh, there was news last week that actually made international news of a young reporter, Allison Donahue, who writes for the Michigan Advance, um, who went to approach Senator Lucido on the Senate floor to ask a few questions about a Facebook group that he was a member of um, that had some really violent and graphic death threats against the governor um, and sitting members of Congress. So there was already a story pending that she was looking for a quote on. Uh, But in the process of waiting, he made some incredibly sexist remarks to her. And she published it in her story, which was effectively, I I went to interview him about this story, and and here's what he said to me. Um, And that blew up. And I read her story uh, as soon as it came out, and, and many of us in the Senate were texting back and forth about it at you know seven o'clock in the morning, um, and how disgusted we were. But I, I saw the way that she spoke about it, um, and it said that it made her feel small and insignificant. And I suddenly felt a pang of responsibility um, because I had had an interaction with then House member Pete Lucido uh, shortly after my election that I never reported. So uh, the news this week, I I filed a harassment report with the Senate Business Office officially against Senator Lucido um, regarding an incident that happened on November 9th of 2018, so just a few days after my election, and it was new senator orientation in Lansing. So it was the first time that I was out there to meet all of my new colleagues. Uh, We, you know, we're learning the basics, how much our staffing budgets were, how to set up our office, meeting, you know, Capitol Police and HR and and just running through the basics. And we also had uh, sexual harassment training that day. And during a break, uh, I walked over and introduced myself to um, House member Lucido. And he shook my hand and then put his other hand on the very, very low of my back with his fingers grazing my hip and upper rear and and held it there. So he was effectively kind of reaching around and, and holding on to me. And we had an exchange, you know, just kind of basic, who are you? Where are you from? I said, I'm from Royal Oak. 
Um, and he asked me who, you know, who'd you beat? And I said, I, I beat Marty Nolenberg. And he looked me up and down, um, scanned my body, raised his eyebrows and said, I can see why. And I remember feeling degraded and deflated and shocked that this was my first interaction with a man that I've never met before. Um, but I was new and I made the calculation at the time that I know I've got an uphill battle. I flipped a district against an incumbent. I'm a woman. I've never served in office before. So this is all brand new for me. So I'm completely new. I'm the youngest woman ever elected to the Michigan Senate. And I'm a member of the minority party. And many of the people in the room campaigned against me. They raised money against me. They didn't want me to be in that room. So at the time, I was disgusted, um, but I shrugged it off and went and sat back down because um, I knew I had to do my job. So at the time, I called my husband on the way home and told him about it. And I think he's he was madder, uh, more mad than I was. Um, but I, I, I kept it to myself. But when Allison's story came out, uh, some of the well, all of the women in the Senate Democratic Caucus, we got together Thursday of last week to talk about how we respond to sexual harassment at the workplace in the Capitol. And within that group, I um, let my colleagues know what happened to me. And immediately, uh, Senator Rosemary Bayer said, I remember that. I remember how low his hand was on you. I remember seeing it. So I knew I had somebody who could corroborate my story. Um, so I decided to file a report and actually hadn't decided to go public until um, I saw Senator Lucido really backpedal on Allison's story. First, it was he didn't deny his comments. And then he put out a tweet that said, I'm sorry, Allison was offended, which is not an apology. Uh, and then by the end of the weekend, he gave an interview to Fox 2 where he said she is a journalist who might have an ulterior agenda and that it doesn't matter what I said. It matters what she heard, what she wanted to hear. And, and that was unacceptable to me. Um, so I knew that I had a, a story that showed a pattern of behavior, not a one-off incident, and, and decided to go public with it. And, and for Lucido's part, um, for, for your complaint filed, um, he was quoted saying to the Detroit Free Press, I categorically deny this allegation, which I believe is completely untrue and politically motivated. What's your response to, to that? I saw that. Um, it's the same statement he gave to Cranes, and it's, it's what he's just been saying to anybody about it. And... I wasn't surprised. I'm deeply disappointed. But the the idea that me coming forward could somehow be politically motivated is such an obscene suggestion. I mean, there there is no case in the history of women coming forward to report um, sexual harassment that has been beneficial to women's careers. Um, and especially for me, I mean, I, I serve in what has long been a Republican district. So I, I talked to a lot of people over the weekend and, you know, I realize this may very well be the end of my career and certainly make reelection harder, but that's okay if it makes working in and around the Capitol easier for anybody. 
it looks like some, and this just happened yesterday, so there is still some ongoing news with what's happening with this. There was um, the Senate, the Michigan Senate did open an investigation last week into the original um, complaints and have added this now into that investigation. And now they're saying they're hiring private lawyers um, to to investigate this. Um, but what do you know, if any, of the next steps that are going to be taking or the timeline of events? Um, is there any sort of expectations or, or hopes um, for what happens next here? Yeah, I, you know, I, I know that the Senate Business Office, and I was really reassured um, to see both uh, Senator Ananik, who's my Democratic caucus leader, and Senator Shirky, who's the majority leader, together request an investigation into um, Allison's report, which was really, really reassuring to me that it was swift. Um, and now that they're bringing on an outside uh, counsel to manage it, which, which I hope removes, even though the Senate Business Office is wholly nonpartisan, um, that it it can be viewed as something that is very objective. Um, I spoke with the Senate Business Office today and, you know, answered any questions and went through my account and my report with them. There's there's no timeline at this point. I know they want to be um, swift about reacting in, in a timely manner, but also I know that there may be potentially other people coming forward. Um, so they want to make sure that there's there's time for that as well and to collect um, any other stories or, or any evidence um, to be able to, to support um, the investigation. Last thing, just in a general way on this too, is um, I was telling my mom that you were coming on the show yesterday, and it's just... Um, it opens up conversations that are difficult, but... Um, necessary and the things she was telling me were just so like Andrew every woman I know has stories like this where they felt uncomfortable she told me stories of hiding in a closet from someone who was just being a creep and following her around and it's just like um, what is your message to people who are um, afraid to come forward and um, I know that in other interviews you've done in the last couple of days that you know, not to minimize this situation, but certainly on the spectrum of harassment, um, there there are worse things that could happen, but the importance still of coming forward and telling that story, despite maybe thinking that, you know, oh, you're minimizing it in your head before you even come public of it. What would your message be to those people? Yeah, it's been interesting to watch the reaction. And I kind of knew going in, because um, even my calculus at the, the time was, this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, it certainly doesn't feel great. Uh, but I was talking to my mom uh, over the past few days who, you know, was very nervous when I told her that this was going to be coming out. Um, and she recalled when I was much younger, uh, in my teenage years, I worked at a grocery store and was the front end manager, you know, at, at 16 or 17. And there was somebody who was stalking me. Um, somebody who we knew around the store who would regularly come in um, with women who were covered in bruises. I mean, it was different women. It was it was a bad situation. And I lived in a very rural area, um, so I would go running around cornfields, and he followed me one day. Uh, and there was nowhere to go because I was surrounded by cornfields. Um, and my mom, being a very protective mom, she had asked me to call uh, from the store if he ever came in, and I did. He was at the liquor store next door, and then he was coming back to the store, and she floored it in, you know, a Dodge Durango and cut him off on the highway. Like, she scared the living heck out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, I, I was a woman in the auto industry. I designed a concept car and I received death threats and rape threats. And even for me, this is not the worst thing that I've experienced. And I don't do this to minimize anybody who's gone through significant um, domestic or sexual abuse or assault. But we have to acknowledge that that abuse happens on a spectrum, particularly when it's repeated. And, you know, when I was asked this week, have you experienced anything like this since being Lance? And, and exactly to your point, um, people experience things like this every day. And you make the decision, is this enough to report or do I just suck it up and do my job? Um, and eventually, you know, that that's a weight that you carry around. And there are some people you see that you just kind of clench up because, you know, they're going to touch you. They're going to say something to you. Um, but it's, you know, my, my hope in my story coming forward is I realize that I have a position that grants me um, some protection and some flexibility that people who are staffers or journalists or pages or visitors to the Capitol or um, working in the lobby corps, anybody in and around Lansing may not feel like they have. So my hope was in sharing my story that it empowers some other people to do the same. Um, and even in talking with the Senate Business Office this week, uh, you know, they, they they advised it's a strange thing to come forward with a report when, you know, I think all of us have a sense of pride and we can handle ourselves. Uh, but they said, you know, even things that seem small at the time, if we start to see a pattern of behavior mm. and it makes it a difficult place for many people to work, it's it's helpful to say something and have that on record. Absolutely. You mentioned cornfields. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in White House, New Jersey, oh. so which is a scandalous thing to say as a legislator <laughs> in Michigan, but it was rural New Jersey. And my house growing up was more than 200 years old, and uh, the town was named for a white house on the end of the street that George Washington had stayed in. So uh, very different from Royal Oak. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the population of the town at the time? It was one from? street. Oh, my God. We had to be a few hundred people. Oh, wow. I didn't even have a mailbox. We didn't have mail delivery. So I had to walk down the street to pick up our mail, which was at the post office, which was on the backside of a general store. So uh, kind of a, a blast from the past, but a, a fun place to grow up. So you grew up there. Um, at what point did did you move out of New Jersey? Uh, I moved out of New Jersey to go to college. I went to Notre Dame, so just south of Michigan and certainly not the most popular uh, thing about me in the capital, uh, especially when it's football season. But yeah, and then and I moved, I, I've lived in five different states, so I moved from Indiana to Southern California. I was in Orange County uh, and then back to finish school, moved back out to California uh, to build my career, got recruited for a job on the East Coast and was in New York and, and finally moved to Michigan after falling in love with it on a road rally that I participated in every year for five years. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's it's the best place I've ever lived. At what point along those uh, travels and, and living in different places did you have a, a, a knack to get into politics? Was it something that always interested you or was there something along in your career that made you want to get involved? No, I never thought I would be involved in politics. I mean, I, I always paid attention and was interested uh, by what was happening. But when we moved back to Michigan, my husband's originally from here. Mm. Um, it was, you know, 2014, 2015, leading into 2016. And after experiencing so many different parts of the country and living in places like 
LA and New York where, you know, it's very diverse and it's, it's a melting pot and everybody's thrown together. Um, when I came back and saw the lead up to the 2016 election, it really felt like Michigan was a microcosm of what was happening in the rest of the country, where we were at this point where we had to decide, were we trying to hold on to a time in the past or were we going to move forward? And, you know, that is not to discount how divisive Trump versus Clinton was. And people had very, very strong opinions. And the number of people in Michigan who showed up and voted without selecting a president is indicative of that. Um, But, you know, we are a state that makes cars and built our legacy on the post-war industrial revolution. And it really felt like we decided that the dynamic of somebody who was bragging about sexual assault and was demeaning to people with disabilities and anybody who's other or brown or wasn't, you know, didn't look like him, um, demeaning them was okay as long as you said it like it was and you were tough and you were different. And, and that broke my heart. So I remember there was a moment before the 2016 election in Royal Oak where it was uh, two days after the Access Hollywood tapes were released of now President Trump um, saying what he did about grabbing women. And a family on my street took down their American flag and put up a Trump flag. And it was shocking to me because they had two middle school aged daughters that I saw come home from school every day. And, and I just wondered, how do you talk to them about the fact that this is okay? Um, so that made me want to get involved. So I went to the women's March in Detroit. Um, and I'd never been to a protest before. It, that's just not anything that, that I had done before. And, um, I remember friends posting on Facebook for, you know, people who are new to marches, make sure you bring milk in case you get maced and write your phone number on your arm. And I was prepared for the worst. And the Women's March, it sounds like in pretty much every location was joyful. And it was people celebrating that they were coming together. And I saw women who brought multiple generations of their families um, and networked and found each other. And that's what kickstarted me getting involved and eventually running for office. And so you uh, ran for state senator against um, incumbent Republican Marty Nolenberg, as you were mentioning. Um, what was that campaign like um, leading up to it? Um, what was your impression being, um, you know, first time running for something? Um, what was your impressions of the whole process in general, of just the uh, campaign? Uh, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went through a program called Emerge Michigan, which is a mm-hmm. chapter of Emerge America, which is an organization that exists to recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. So I did that for six months. Uh, and then coming out of that, honestly, I thought I would help on Gretchen Whitmer's campaign. I had gotten to know her um, when I went to a couple of events where she had spoken. And then we, we looked at this seat and Jocelyn Benson uh, was a trainer in Emerge and taught one of our sections. And I remember her saying, you know, particularly for women, um, don't discount yourself. I think that and I thought this, too. This is a new, quote unquote, industry for me. I've never been involved in politics. I've got to start at the bottom. And she said, you know, you've got a great career that you've built don't count yourself out. Run for the seat you want to run for. And I had a few conversations with people, including Senator Curtis Hertel, who's a senator out of Lansing. And we decided I was going to go for this. And a lot of people wrote me off, even in you know my own party, who said, you have no chance. 
right? But you run a good race, it'll build your name recognition, and then you can run for city council, city commission next time around. Um, that's not how I do things. So we ran a really, really hard race. And I, I think there was something helpful about being so far off the radar. I mean, nobody looked at this as, as a race that was remotely possible. Um, so I announced in August of 2017, uh, I had quit my job by the end of that year and I was in it full time. By the end of it, we had more than 500 volunteers over the course of the campaign. And I was worried that I was only going to get millennials and young people and people who were kind of attracted to my story, but we had kids who would come to our events and draw postcards and we had retirees. We had so many retired teachers and grandparents and it was, it was amazing. So, you know, it was such a cool experience and friends of mine thought I was nuts. They're like, why would you want to get into politics? Um, but there's no other experience where you meet people, total strangers who will invite you into their house and invite all of their friends and neighbors and make delicious food and just talk about a future you want to see together. So it was really energizing and we did it. And you won. (laughs) Yeah. Now, despite maybe being written off or considered unlikely, um, you did win, but did you feel unprepared once you won? You know, I mean, there's always the nerves of going into something new. Uh, but I had already changed industries a few times in my career. I started as a car designer and then the industry fell apart. Uh, and I went to Mattel and I was a toy designer and I oversaw global branding and licensing with companies from all around the world. Uh, I have a patent on a product. I worked in media and advertising and was the creative director for Gawker Media when it still existed. So I, I was comfortable, as I think a lot of millennials are, pivoting. Um, but I knew that a lot of the skills that I brought with me in terms of creativity and communication and collaboration were relevant. Um, but it was important to me. I, I hired my chief of staff, Molly Korn, who was um, Sam Singh's legislative director, and he was the outgoing uh, House Democratic leader. So she'd been in Lansing for six years, seven years now. And it was really important to me to surround myself with people who knew Lansing, who knew how to get things done. Because um, I think that's the balance of there's benefit to being new, but I didn't want to go in totally blind. And so now that you're you're in the in the gig, um, what sort of bills have you been co-sponsoring? What are sort of some of the um, um, what are some of the bills that you're most most interested in or proud of that you've already been involved in? Yeah, I'll say the the umbrella of everything that I think about in terms of my legislative priorities are what are the things we can do to attract and keep people in Michigan. And I think that's something that really, really resonated with people when I was campaigning is, you know, I'm not somebody who's originally from here, but I chose to move here after living all over the country. And I love this place. This is where Ray and Charles Eames met at Cranbrook, which if you're a designer, that's, you know, they're the holy grail of couple goals um, and mid-century modern design. I mean, there's so many great examples of it. And, and we are the home of the auto industry. And I always looked at this place as a place that can and has changed the world. And I didn't always see that coming out of Lansing. And I could also afford to buy a house here. It's mm-hmm. unbelievably beautiful. You can go on a road trip up north and see the fall. I mean, it's just there's no other place in the country like it. So when I was talking to people on the campaign, I would get a lot of, you remind me a lot of my daughter. And she mm-hmm. left to go to Chicago. 
what can we do to get her back? Um, so that's a lot of what I focus on. So uh, it's about talent attraction, economic development, how do we protect our environment and uh, clean water. So I've been taking the lead on a lot of clean water initiatives and helped get $120 million into the budget this past year for PFAS and lead water um, remediation, which I'm really proud of. And, and that was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Uh, I am the lead on a package of bills to expand Michigan's electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And I'm also one of the co-chairs of the Legislative Automotive Caucus, so leading on automotive issues. And the way I look at this is this is our signature industry, and it's going to change more rapidly in the next 10 years than it has since we went from horses to cars. So we have to be on the forefront of it, or we're going to get left behind not only by places like San Francisco, but China, who's investing incredibly heavily in electric vehicles and EVs. So uh, we've got a bipartisan bill package that I'm hoping gets taken up early this year uh, that would create an EV infrastructure council to put together recommendations on not only where chargers should go, but how do we regulate them? How do we charge people for them? What makes sense? Um, As well as allowing all of our state parks to lease out a space for charging, collecting that revenue to go back into the state park system. And you could imagine we could promote um, EV green tourism. You could drive an electric car to all of our state parks. Something similar for park and rides to lease out and collect revenue to go back into roads, which I know would be a very, very small drop in the bucket, but we need all the drops we can get right now. Um, And an incentive bill that would uh, kind of be the incentive of last resort. There's a lot of programs now, whether it's the Volkswagen settlement money or uh, programs from DTE or consumers to incentivize chargers, uh, but ours would incentivize small businesses uh, and multifamily housing. So people who live in apartments who might not be able to install a charger for builders to to put in a charger as well. Just going off of the, the EV um, discussion as well, it, it seems like... Um a win-win-win as far as uh, your agenda as well. I mean, combating climate change, reducing dependence on oil and, and you know, uh, foreign influence with that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm curious about autonomous vehicles as well. You mentioned that the automotive industry is changing and transportation industry is changing as a whole in the next 10 years in ways that we might not even be able to fully wrap our heads around quite yet. But I'm curious what your thoughts are as far as the next 10, 20 years where not only EV but also autonomous vehicles are going. Will everyone still own a, a vehicle of their own? I mean, where do you think this is going? It, it especially is relevant to infrastructure in cities like Troy where we have – a, a, a traffic problem, to say right. the least, um, somewhat oversaturation, and and really nowhere to put all the cars with parking lots. Um, what can cities do to position themselves and spend their money wisely now for what's coming in the next 10, 20 years, especially as it is concerned with um, autonomous vehicles and whether or not people are going to want to own their own vehicle in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I have a unique perspective on this coming from the auto industry and, and having written for Um, road and track. So I'm very close with a lot of auto analysts and journalists. Um, The realistic outlook is we won't see widely deployed autonomous vehicles probably for another couple of decades. Uh, It is, I think we're seeing with all of the, the automakers who are putting a lot of capital into developing it, it's really hard to teach a car how to drive itself. Um, We humans are very, very good at managing the unknown. Uh, There's a video that I I love, but it just shows you can't make 
things up sometimes. Uh, and it was from Google, from Waymo. They had, you know, it was a heat map video of an intersection and you saw kind of these two heat dots running around in a circle and the car was stopped. And what it was in reality was a woman on a rascal scooter chasing a duck. And there's just no way. I mean, you're not going to plan for that. You can't program that. So there's a ton of progress and a lot of companies in my district, like Aptive and many of the robotics companies out in Rochester Hills are working on this, which is incredible. Um, but I want to set very realistic realistic expectations that we don't avoid planning for the immediate future to wait for something that's not going to be feasible, um, especially widely deployed for, for a while. Because we have immediate transit needs. We have immediate transportation needs and infrastructure needs. Um, so I am hopeful to see, you know, as we start discussions about public transit again, that we are talking about can we integrate a bus system with maybe something that helps for the final mile that gets seniors closer to a bus route, um, whether it's via like an Uber or Lyft service, or maybe it is an autonomous vehicle that, uh, you know, operates kind of on a set route, uh, which would be probably deployed much more quickly. Um, So it's planning for that. So I think that in the short term, um, electric vehicles is a really good sweet spot and a very rare one where we have consensus from the business community and the environmental community. It's the right thing to do, and it makes economic sense. Um, So I I think planning to put the infrastructure in place, even if we do get autonomous vehicles, they are likely going to be electric and they're going to need to charge. So it's it's putting the pieces in place, and one of the reasons why my bill in the package that that I led the charge on is the EV Infrastructure Council bill, because it doesn't make sense for us to put a charger every 50 miles now, but where can we start to deploy them in a way that makes sense, where they're most needed, where they're most used, so we're not wasting time and resources and money on something that, that is going to be obsolete at some point. And I imagine the short term things are the the things that you're hearing most about from constituents on a regular basis. But in your previous meetups with people, what are residents saying? What's um, what are some of their biggest concerns um, as far as what's happening in their backyard? What's happening down their street? Yeah, you know, it it runs the gamut, Mm -hmm. and it's a different uh, experience every time, which is why we do them so frequently, and I encourage people to come. Uh, I love we've got a couple of people who come to every single one just to get an update uh, and have some coffee and meet your neighbors. But we are hearing, particularly because it's 2020 and it is a major election year, uh, people have questions about the new voting laws that went into effect, Um, the independent redistricting commission. Are we going to have the same districts? Are you still going to be my senator? Uh, The census is coming up and how important that that is, but also it's the first census that can be completed online. So what does that mean? How do we reach people and make sure that everybody is counted? Because, you know, Michigan has been kind of holding steady and gaining population, but at a much lower rate than other states. So as it stands right now, we are likely to lose a congressional seat after the current census. But the census is crucial because it impacts how much federal funding we get, um, how resources are allocated, and determines you know, our representation in in D.C. So we're having a town hall um, on that coming up with uh, the lieutenant governor is coming. He ran for a Detroit uh, city clerk before he became our lieutenant governor. So he is probably the most passionate person I've ever met about uh, election issues and the census. Um, And that'll be a great way for for people to get all of their questions answered. We're also hearing, you know, concerns about water. Um, Obviously, being Michigan, 
this is a source of pride for us. We are the Great Lake State and we see whether it's the green ooze in Madison Heights, which is right next door to my district, um, or the PFAS issue across the state, or the uranium storage facility in Detroit that collapsed into the Detroit River that we actually didn't know about for a few days until Canada informed us. Um, and, and people do have very, very serious concerns about the quality of our water in the Great Lakes and in the water basin and in you know our drinking water, what comes out of our taps. So we've had new uh, lead and copper testing rules go into effect, and I've been really leading on messaging that with communities to make sure people know what to do if you do have a lead service line because there is enhanced testing now to find out where all of the lines in the state are um, and make sure everybody's safe so we hear about that all the time Um, questions about auto insurance because we passed uh, new auto insurance reform and and candidly i voted against what passed Uh, but my promise is is to help make sure it's facilitated in the right way we've heard from residents that they've already seen their rates spike ahead of the new law going into effect so if we need to introduce legislation to help rein that in we will um but it's going to be a a huge lift on educating people on what the change means what is covered under auto no fault that maybe your health care doesn't cover so that people can make an informed decision now that there will be options Mm. on whether you want to stay with the unlimited coverage, which I would recommend if you can afford it, especially as the new law goes into effect and we kind of see what happens um, versus the other tiers that are available. My last question is just a bit about uh, the legacy that you want to leave in politics. Um, I'm not sure what your aspirations are for more uh, state politics or maybe on a national level if you'd like to get involved, but maybe you can give us an idea too of if and well, when <laughs> inevitably you vacate the state senator seat you're in now, um, what you'd like to be remembered for. Um, and then sort of also, if you do have aspirations, what are they? Are they on a state level? Are they on a national level? Is it sort of open to uh, what happens in the future? And we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's a really hard thing to think about your legacy one year into your new job. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I am fully committed and I ran for a state level seat because this is where a lot of the decisions happen that affect our everyday lives. Um, I remember when I was running, particularly in the year of the woman, when we had people running um, like Alyssa Slotkin and Haley Stevens, people asked me, why aren't you running for Congress? Um, I want to be here in Michigan. I chose Michigan as my home and I want to make it the state that I know that it is. Um, so I hope I get reelected in three years and, and, and will be in the state Senate for eight years. Uh, for the remainder of my term. And, and, you know, it was interesting thinking a lot about this idea this week as these issues were coming up um, around harassment. And I was talking to um, members of my staff, and and my staff is currently all women. Um, But if what we're doing now can help bring more people into politics, whether it's women, minorities, people who are underrepresented, um, on staff and make it a better place to work. That's a pretty good legacy that that I can be proud of. 
Definitely. Well, and I know on the national level, too, you've already endorsed Elizabeth Warren for president. I'm sure you have plans to help campaign for her on some level uh, in Michigan. Uh, are there any sort of plans for that already in place? I mean, I know um, she called you when you won your seat. Yeah. And so um, I'm curious if there's uh, any sort of plans already in place or if you've already been involved. Uh, I know you were because we're on Twitter. You uh, were at some of the watch parties for, mm-hmm. the, for the debates and things. But what is sort of your role? going to be in that uh, campaign and helping her um, get elected in Michigan. Yeah, I think coming out of 2016, all of us thought that we could have done more, right? I think that was a feeling of a lot of people um, who didn't knock enough doors or make enough phone calls. So I want to help in any way that I can. And uh, I endorsed fairly early. And a a lot of the reason for that is, is, yes, she called me um, shortly after my election uh, and you know, it doesn't come up and say Elizabeth Warren on the phone. It's just a number I don't recognize. And funnily enough, um, Rebecca Warren was a Michigan democratic Senator. Mm. So, you know, I was tired from coming off a campaign and I answered the phone and she said, hello, this is Elizabeth Warren. And I just said, oh, Hey, like <laughs> thinking it was Rebecca Warren. And she, you know, once we started talking, the voice was recognizable and, and she was wonderful. And this was well before she announced her presidential campaign, um, but spent, you know, probably a good 20 minutes on the phone with me and, and genuinely wanted to know how did it go? What was the campaign like? And and most importantly, what, how are people doing? How do they feel? What do they care about? And it's interesting being in a flipped Senate seat in Oakland County in Michigan. Um, my district has kind of become a bellwether. So I've heard from a number of presidential candidates mm-hmm. um, and there is a small nuance. I mean, she she asked me how people felt and how they were. Um, other candidates asked me, how can I do well in Michigan? And it's something I noticed. And it's very small, but it was less about strategy and how can I win and more about what do your people care about and what do they need? Um, and that meant a lot to me. And uh, I, I introduced her at her town hall in Lansing. And from here on out, you know, I'm talking to her team here in Michigan. She was the first candidate to open an office here in Michigan and build out her field team. Um, So I'm sure I'll be out on doors and helping make phone calls. But I also want to make sure we don't forget about the down ballot. Um, We saw in 2018, you know, we had a very, very strong slate of candidates running for state Senate and state house and local races that I think helped up, um, helped Dana Nessel, helped Gretchen Whitmer. Um, and, and I want to see that as well. So I'm launching, uh, my PAC this year, which I will, even though I'm not on the ballot this year, be raising money to support both state house candidates who are running this year and raising for the state Senate as well, because real change policy starts in state houses. So I hope we get a democratic president and then I hope we've got a good team to support them. But, you know, I, I, I believe in what she's put out and she's got a plan for everything and it makes sense. Um, to support all the things to make make this place work for everybody. Senator McMorrow, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I know we're just the the little Troy Somerset Gazette newspaper, but the it best. Really doesn't mean a lot. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks again to State Senator Mallory McMorrow. Her next meetup with Mallory event is Monday, February 10th at 9 a.m. at the Office Coffee Shop in Royal Oak. And then again on Friday, February 28th at 9.30 a.m., she'll be at the Rochester Hills Public Library, joined by State Representative Michael Weber. 
Thanks for listening to Voices of Troy. Please subscribe, share this episode with a friend if you enjoyed it. And if you live in Troy, be sure to pick up your free copy of the Troy Somerset Gazette on newsstands around town. I'm Andrew Neal, and I'll see you next week.